We are in 1 Thessalonians this morning, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Just a small paragraph this morning. And in this text, uh, Paul is speaking about brotherly love. He's talking about brotherly love in a group context. I think that's maybe not very profound, but it needs to be stated very clearly up front. He's talking about a group of people who have an identification that's crucial, that binds them together. He's talking about an identification that's found exclusively in Jesus Christ. An identification is something I think that we all hunger for as people, and how we find identity at times is associated Uh, We live in a culture here in the West where uh, we try to find identity based on the things that we own at times. Throughout the 1950s especially, there was a real shift that took place when America became increasingly so materialistic. Prior to the 1950s, most people in America, when they were born into a community, their identity was set for them. I mean, they they may even have gone to a church all of their life, the church that their families have gone to. Maybe they even all voted a certain way in a political party, kind of how uh, maybe they were identified by the the farming community that they were connected with. It was all kind of pre-made and pre-set, but when the 1950s came, cars and motion and movement, people's identities started to take form in different ways. So, people began to form their identity based upon, well, I live in the right neighborhood, or I have my identity based on the car that I drive or the work that I have, and that became an identification for people. So, just for an example, sometimes people will… this happens, you know it happens, people buy a car because they associate buying that car with an identity. You know, if I drive a Ford Mustang, that says something about who I am, right? I don't have a Ford Mustang. I'm not in that there. Or maybe it's the size of the tires on the truck, okay? It creates an identity. But there's been a shift that's been taking place, and it's not a perfect shift, but the generation that is the up-and-coming larger generation in America, the millennial generation, is finding identity not on the stuff they own, so much as they're finding it on the experiences that they have. So, for example, if you can post it on social media and people like it, you suddenly are creating an identity about who you are. You travel to the Andes and you, bike pa- you backpack over the hills you scale the Eiffel Tower. You're something. And that identity is like being formed by experiences, not necessarily in the things that you have. I'm not really necessarily saying something that's new. It's always been. We've always had a desire for an identity. Unfortunately, we tend to create idols out of these identity markers. We think that by an experience or the truck that I drive or the car I drive, that this is going to create some sort of happiness for me that only God can give. Now, I know that's not, if we think about it that way, it becomes a counterfeit God, okay? 
But in contrast to this desire and hunger for identity and things or experiences, the Bible tells us we need to find our identity exclusively in Jesus Christ. This is the true and living God, and we as a group are finding identity in Him. We don't find it in anything else. And the goal here in coming to Christ is to find joy and fulfillment and happiness, not in things or experiences, but in relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, Paul here in chapter 4 is saying, you left this world, and now you've come to Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing that, you do it so more and more. This is the goal. This is the ultimate purpose of belonging to Jesus Christ. Your ultimate purpose and identity now is found in association with Him and in His people, the body of Christ. And so, Paul is emphasizing how incredibly, incredibly important it is for us to Find desiring what God desires satisfying. Last Sunday, we learned that it was God's will that we avoid immorality in all of its forms and that we pursue holiness. That's part of our new identity in Christ. This paragraph in verses 9 through 12, Paul's encouraging us to pursue brotherly love more and more so that the world will notice that we belong to a new group. We have a new identity. And so, we are no longer in this world. We're God's people in Christ, and we share the love of Christ with one another in a brotherly fashion. And so, Paul is saying here, and under inspiration, he's saying that our ultimate purpose is to please God by loving one another, not just once in a while, but to be growing in this brotherly affection so that the world may know that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us as a group. And so, let's just read the text here. I've looked at it in two pieces. There's two parts in this text. Well, let's look at verse 9. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Maybe this, as I was being read for you, maybe you picked up on the word outsider. There is a, a difference here in relationship of those who are inside and those who are outside, and we have an outward view to those who are outside. But the brotherly love is the foundational, distinctive, identifying marker here of those who are inside. So this morning verses 9 through 10, I see Paul saying here that we're to strive to embrace one another more and more. Strive to embrace one another more and more. A friend of mine 
who is in China, actually, on a short-term uh, missions trip, he um, wrote home about his new experience of, of being in China and having grown up in America all of his life. He was noticing and he was learning how that the culture there is significantly different than our culture. And so, he gave an example. He said, as Westerners, we see most things in life as innocent versus guilty. And he said, well, in the East, they look at things in terms of honor and shame. And actually, that's a true worldview difference between us and them. And it's the worldview of the East that Paul is writing from, and that's where Jesus was communicating with His followers and His disciples. And there's a significance here that's important for us to understand. And we need to really start to not to lose our identity as the West, but we need to incorporate this mindset a little bit more in our thinking as it's being communicated by Christ. I just did, what, what is the difference between these? I just went over them quickly, but what is, what is the differences between these ways of thinking? Well, in an innocent and guilt culture, we tend to think in terms of our own individuality, and there is a slide here. Yes, there it is. You fill in the blank there. It could be anything. It could be, is lying the right thing to do, or will it be the wrong thing to do as it relates to how it's going to affect me? For example, think of a courtroom. It's often thought, you know, as in a court situation, a judge will think in terms of innocent versus guilty as it relates to you. You can think about politics. We tend to think in these frameworks as well um, when we're looking at, like, a political action, whether it's right or it's wrong, and, and it may not be neither of those things. We tend to think in very, very black and white extremes. It's not necessarily anything particularly wrong with that, but in an honor and shame culture, they think about things a little bit differently. They think in terms of, will this action bring respect to my family or to my country, to my group, to my people, to my group. And I think, though, that we're not entirely immune from this thinking because we, we, we do think about this from time to time here in America, particularly when the events of 9-11 transpired, when the firemen who went in and they gave their life for the sake of those people who were burning in that building… We all thought as a collective body, we thought, you know what, if there was anyone who's an American, that's them, right? Their actions brought great honor to us as Americans as a whole. We thought, wow, and it kind of unified the country a little bit, and we thought it doesn't matter who or what their political identity was, they were brave, and they're worthy of honor. Well, what if someone does something that's dishonorable? What if they're bringing shame. What is, what is that? Well, it's not necessarily the idea that I have done something wrong per se, but it's, it's kind of that shame that you feel like when you're outside of a group. Maybe it's like when you're in high school, and when you're in high school, if you don't have the right shoes on, and you know, you don't, you don't wear your hair the right way, or your belt is too tight, and you don't let it hang down. Okay, anyway. You're not cool. You're bringing shame to the group. You don't fit in. 
And I, I've experienced that at times, and it can do some things, can it? It can kind of make you either repelled from the group or say, oh, I've got to be like the group, and so I kind of I conform to the group. And what does this have to do with anything? Well, actually, it has a lot to do with what Paul is saying. He is saying, he's encouraging believers to embrace one another into the inclusivity of the group, to encourage one another to have love, a brotherly love and affection regardless of where people have come from. We have to show a brotherly love and include. Love among Christians is what forms our identity in Jesus Christ. It forms our sense of belonging within the group. And this is what Jesus told us, wasn't it? By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have what? You have love for one another. It's John 13, 35. That's the mark of the brotherhood. It's the belonging. And so as we embrace one another... Our sense of identity in Christ increases in everyone else, and we become pleasing to the Lord, but we have to ask ourselves, where does this come from? Is this something that we can manufacture? It's not something that we can manufacture. In fact, in verse 9, there's indication here that Paul is aware that This comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a part of the new covenant relationship that was prophesied back in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, Lane Jones last Sunday evening had an excellent point. He said that love among Christians has got to be a great priority. It's one of the big rocks he was talking about. But I'm going to piggyback on that just a minute here this morning because it's a big rock, it's a great priority, but you know what? It is a mark of the new covenant relationship of a believer. The new commandment that's in John 13 is also the new covenant in Christ. The phrase Paul uses here in verse 9, he says, I have no need to write this to you because it's already, it's already in you. You were taught by God. It came to you not from me. It, it happened at that moment of conversion. It was, it was right there, graven on your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, was prophesying of the one day in which the Holy Spirit would indwell and write the framework law upon the hearts. This is what Paul is getting at. Paul is saying that love was graven. It was written. It was etched. I didn't need to teach you. You've got a framework for it because the Holy Spirit is there. It's it's inside of you. It's ready to go. How did this teaching take place? Romans 5, 5. In another place, Paul said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's been written. It's been poured into And so, loving others is the outflow of a personal relationship with God. 
It doesn't originate anywhere else. It has to come from the heart. And that heart is taught by God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the text that was read this morning in 1 John, John wrote, he said, whoever, does, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And see, without love among Christians, it's not possible to have a healthy church. It's not possible to even say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. How does a group form without this kind of love? How does it form anywhere in the world? But especially, how does it form in such a way that we become a witness to the world? How does it take place in Wayne County? How does it take place here in the tabernacle? How does it take place? The first base has to be conversion. It has to be the gift of the Holy Spirit there within you. Going to first base, what happens? How do you, how do you kind of stroke those embers? How do you let it grow? How do you do it more and more, as Paul is saying? And this next point here, I believe is, I hope it's a helpful point, but we have to get to a brotherly love by working through the cross. And I've termed it kind of a catchy thing, the pathway to Philadelphia goes through Calvary. I mean, if you've been around the block a little bit in church life, you know that there are different words for the word love in the, in the New Testament. There's one that talks about a brotherly love, it's phileo, phileo or Philadelphia is where we get that word of brotherly love or brotherly shove. But the word means to be relaxed. It means to be, to be endeared. It means to be let your guard down with people. It's a, it's a very warm, emotional idea. You're, you're free to let your soul cling to someone else's soul. It's the idea of what brotherly love is. It's the, very, it's the sweet love that we all want. The other word that's used here, that word Philadelphia, though, is found in verse 9. It says, now concerning brotherly love, that's that word. But then he says, I have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That second word, love, is the word agape, agapao. It's the, it's the love that respects, it values, it places, it fixes one's attention on someone and counts them as valuable and worth considering. It's the basis of the new commandments. And of the two words, the first word, though, that I talked about, Philadelphia, is the one that we really maybe enjoy more. You know, we have people in our life that we can let our guard down with, and we know that they're not going to sit in judgment over us, and we can just kind of relax and give and take. That's brotherly love. We all want to get there but you can't get there without first valuing them and committing yourself to them. It's a purposeful love that has to take place first before the brotherly function will happen. I mean, every one of us are sinners. We have all come short of the glory of God, and so we hurt one another, and people hurt us. And it makes it very difficult to value and esteem people who are constantly sticking their knife in us. But that's what happened on the cross. 
Jesus was being pierced with the spear. He was being, the thorns of the crown were crushed into his skull. And as this was happening, he was purposely valuing them. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in order to get to that brotherly love, we have to intentionally, first place, we have to, we have to die for one another. What? Die for one another? Well, if someone hurts us and offends us, we've got to stop requiring them to pay for that hurt. We've got to absorb the hurt just as Jesus absorbed it on the cross. And when that happens, our eyes turn and look at one another, and we say, they're valuable in God's eyes. I'm going to pray for them. And over time, brotherly love can flourish. That's how it happens. It's not a yippy-skippy change where you flick the white switch on, though. It takes time. But that grows more and more. You have to go to Calvary first before you can get to Philadelphia type of love. It can't go any other way. Third thing that I want to emphasize here that's critically important for us to understand is that brotherly love grows through intentional relationships. Intentional relationships. I see this in verse 10 and really verse 9 and 10 together because the, the brotherly love was expanding. It was growing, but it was growing in connection to other believers. It was growing in their own city of Thessalonica, but it was also expanding out to Thessalonica as well. And this brotherly love ought to be the goal of our body. It shouldn't stop there. It shouldn't just sit within a contained group. It should kind of, kind of blossom and grow and go into other relationships with other uh, uh, and the camaraderie has to grow. And as believers, we need to make a conscious effort at developing this kind of brotherly love at home so that we're able to take it outside the church to other places. It can't expand if it doesn't happen here first. And we may need to be purposeful in our commitment here at the tabernacle in a way that we communicate to one another that we are committed, but that we're also ready to grow in relationship with one another. We need to move beyond a love that values. Yes, we, we kind of all sit here, but we, we look at one another and we value one another and we're thankful that we're all here, but do we know one another in such a way that our guard is let down when we interact with each other? I know on a Sunday morning, conversations are fairly you know, typical. Hey, how are you doing? Good, 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 good. How's the weather? Oh, it was good. Yeah, South Canyon was good, and way up where I was, and, you know, uh, uh, Ham, uh, Hancock is great, you know, and we're all kind of talking about the baseball game or whatever. We're not really getting deep in a way that allows people to, to get to know us, and to understand us, and care for us. And so we often have good intentions as well. I, I, I don't want to critique us too hard because I don't have intentions. I want to, to get to know people better, but if I don't actually initiate that intention, it won't happen, will it? We all need to force ourselves beyond and trust that God will allow brotherly love to grow. 
We have to do this. And so, to help brotherly love grow, the elders have been talking about ways in which we can do this here in our church. And so, here's an announcement. We want to encourage our church family to to fellowship with one another. In your bulletin, we have an insert called Six at Six Fellowships. We want to encourage people to to get to know one another, and I want you to actually just take out your bulletin insert, and I want us to see it. It's a little half, half sheet of paper that Bonnie masterfully created for us. This fall, we want to encourage groups of six to get together and maybe have a meal together. It's going to take commitment, but what is the purpose of all this? Well, the purpose here on our sheet, if you look at it with me, is to allow our church family to know each other better so that we can spiritually minister to one another and with each other better. So, there's participants. Who's involved? Well, it could be a married couple, but it could also be friends who are unmarried. It could be singles. It could be people who have maybe you've lost your spouse, but you can find another way. We can all kind of work, work into this. Uh, we're going to have six people place them in a group, and what's going to happen is over a six-month period of time, you're going to rotate locations three times in six months. So, it's every other month. It's not a huge commitment. It's not a meeting every Monday night type of thing. It's just every, every other month, just an opportunity to kind of connect with the same group of people over a period of time. And so the emphasis here is on a fellowship. It's time for people to draw closer together to serve and encourage one another. It's not a, the sheet says here, it's not a dinner club. It's not to impress one another with your gourmet cooking. It's not a home show. It's not to show off your, your things or whatever. But it's just a, it's not a formal evening either. In fact, uh, ties are forbidden, unless you're Drew and he wears ties all the time. It's not intended to be, you know, overly formal at all. And uh, there's some great questions that are listed here on the back side of this little sheet of paper that are skillfully put together. What if my house or apartment is small? Well, it's great. It's perfect for six people. Or go out to a restaurant together. What if I don't like to cook? Order pizza. What about my children? Well, we can help there too, Lord willing. Call us if you need help with babysitters. We'll try to figure something out so that you can have the freedom to do so. What if I tend to be shy and I don't know a lot of people? This is a great way to start meeting others and to start ministering to them. What if I already have a close circle of friends? Great. Here's a chance to minister to those who do not maybe have that. What if I'm short on time? This one's great. Think of all the time you'll save by eating at someone else's home two times and not having to do the dishes. Plus, you're free to leave immediately after dinner. What if I'm paired with a couple or others I don't like? Well, maybe you'll begin to like them after you begin to serve them. What if I'm paired with a couple or others that don't like me? That's absolutely impossible. Everyone's going to like you. Do we have to meet precisely at 6 p.m.? No, you're free to meet at any time your six feels works for them. It's okay. Do we, and uh, what other questions do I have? Just ask Drew or call the office. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. So, 
what we have here is we have a tear-off. Can we make this any easier? There's a tear-off here that you can put your name and your phone number and hand it to, uh, to the welcome desk on your way out to Bonnie. What a great opportunity. We are trying to be intentional. It's not just me preaching up here and saying, okay, go out and make bricks with no straw. We're trying to give you something that can be helpful. Now, obviously, you don't need a program per se to do it, but this might be helpful for some of us here who are well-intentioned like myself. So, we need to grow more and more in brotherly love. That will have a profound effect upon the world because as we love one another, it will become apparent that as a group, we're something that we ought to consider joining. Maybe we need something that we're missing. And so, as we strive, we, we, we pursue embracing one another. Secondly here, verses 11 and 12, very briefly, very quickly here this morning, we are to strive to influence outsiders more and more. These verses piggyback on verse 10, that idea of, of doing this more and more. There's always room to grow. And the first way in which we need to influence outsiders more and more is first is to aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. Verse 11, uh, just look at that again here. It says, aspire to live quietly. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward. I just lifted that right out of the text. But the word quietly is the same word that describes how Christian wives are to conduct themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You know, you don't have to be female, you could also be male, and it can be, for some of us, take a lot of work to be quiet. But Paul says here, literally, be ambitious to be quiet work hard at it. Don't fuss about yourself. Don't make demands of the world. Be content. Live your life with the understanding that your God loves you so thoroughly, He can take care of you, and you don't have to raise a ruckus all around you. Quietness mirrors a quality of the heart. A quiet heart will result in a quiet life. A nursing child is the picture here, a quiet, meek, and gentle child. If we're accepted, we're loved by Christ, we have nothing to worry about. We don't have to be filled with activity and relentless movements. The second thing here is from verse 11, Paul says, don't be a busybody. Don't be a busybody. Mind your own affairs. Martin Luther came to this text, and he made this note about it. He said, of these kinds of people who are constantly in people's business, he says, they have the notion that they must control everything and superintend and criticize what others do. These are malignant persons. They stir up nothing but mischief and have no grace to do anything good, even though in other respects they may have excellent gifts. For they do not use their talents in their calling or in the service of their neighbor. They only use them for their own glory and advantage. Very insightful. You know, we can, if we can walk by the Walmart aisle and avoid the tabloids and look down our noses at that garbage. 
But we can also indulge in the business of everyone else in a community. This is a balancing act here, I think. We are to have brotherly love for one another, but we don't extort one another with information. We love one another so that people have the freedom to let down their guard. We don't take information and share it with everyone that we know. Why do we want to know everyone's business? If God knows my business, shouldn't I be content with that? Third, verse 11, we're to be productive. Verse 11, and really also in verse 12. I'll read them here. It says, And aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is an admonition, a, an encouragement to work hard. It, it's God's will for us that we find something to do with our hands. And whatever we learn and whatever we do with our hands, God is pleased with it because we're working. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I only had this level of education or if I could only have this advantage in life, then I could really do something. God is pleased when we are acting in faith and working. God wills for us to work. In fact, it's a major means by which He provides for us. God promises to meet our needs. God often actually goes above and beyond when we take that first initiative to work, and He supplies above and beyond what we ask or think. I've seen God work in my own life in which I, I thought, wow, there's no way I could pay for that, and then I start putting my one foot in front of the other and start working and adding, and God slips in a little bit here and slips in a little bit there, and I, I didn't know where it was coming from. This happens all the time. In fact, it even happened to someone who works in our office this week. It's Drew. Drew's in the sermon a lot this Sunday. But Drew had some very bald tires. He had an inspection. He didn't know that he had a need, and so he started working above and beyond what he does here. He was working with some friends and some construction. He was doing drywall. Do you ever do drywall before? He'd never done drywall before. And so he's doing drywall, and he's sanding, and he's, doing all, he's posting pictures of himself with the experience, you know, the white hair, everything. But it was fun to watch. But at any rate, somebody came in and gave him tires. But he was working to get tires. And God does this. He rewards hard effort. He does this because he loves us. He cares for us. But he wants us to believe him by faith and to take a step of obedience and to put one foot in front of the other and work. If a person has a capacity to work and refuses to work, the Scripture says, let him not eat. It's a lack of faith. And so, in both of these areas, this desire to influence the world, we have to keep in mind, first and foremost, the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains us. It influences us. And the universal mark, that identification, that, that ID marker, that I belong to the group of redeemed people for whom Christ is returning, is that I have love one for another. And that's a statement in John chapter 13, a conditional statement. 
It says, if we have love one for another, the following result is then all people will see it. They'll know it. They'll identify us. A concluding thought here. You realize that this might be one of the greatest omissions to the Great Commission? What did Jesus say? Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the one thing that He said. This is the new commandment. Are we teaching this? Are we embracing it? Our discipleship is woefully inadequate if we're not pursuing brotherly love one for another. Consider our own hearts this morning. Do we have blocks and stones that prevent us from loving one another? Are we harboring a resentment so that we cannot go to Philadelphia with somebody? What we need to do is we need to go to Calvary. We need to repent. But we also need to look at that other person and say, this is one for whom Christ has died. Christ valued them. I will value them too, no matter what sins they're doing against me. Are we striving to live a quiet and productive life in this world? It's possible that we don't know anything of Calvary of love if we're not. And lastly, the big obvious application for this message is consider the possibility of joining a Sixth Fellowship this fall. Consider the possibility of signing up. I'm not going to look down on you if you don't. I won't, honestly. But here's what a great opportunity to invest yourself in the pursuit of brotherly love for one another. If you're well-intentioned but just don't know how, this might be a great opportunity for you this fall. So your ultimate purpose is to please God by loving one another more and more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to open Your Word. Thank You for the brother who prayed with me before the service to encourage me. Thank You for Your love that was seen in that moment. But also, Father, we just thank You that Your grace is sufficient. Nothing can separate us from Your love. And so, Father, may we not separate ourselves from one another. May we love one another as You loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Merciful God, oh, abounding in love, faithful to all who draw near you, hearing the cries of the humble in heart, showing the cross they may cling to. Helpless I come, broken in sin, found at the feet of your mercy. Father, forgive 
may my sin be remembered no more. Merciful God, oh, abounding in love, faithful through times we have failed you, selfish in thought and uncaring in deed, foolish in word and ungrateful. Spirit of God, conquer our hearts with love that flows from forgiveness. Cause us to yield and return to the mercy of God. Merciful God, oh, abounding in love, faithful to keep us from falling, guiding our ways with your fatherly hearts, growing our faith with each testing. Godspeed the day, struggles will end, for last we'll gaze on your glory, then we will stand overwhelmed by the mercy of God. to keep us accountable. I enjoy fellowship because I need that. I need brothers and sisters that are close to me that are going to keep me accountable when I'm out in life and doing things, you know, and I step out of line, that they're going to keep me accountable. So I challenge each one of us to be ready for the six for six. Be part of it. And if you think, well, October's a long way away, but next Sunday afternoon after our regular fellowship or regular morning worship. We have fellowship time. We have our uh, fifth Sunday fellowship, which is actually on the fourth Sunday. Okay? So be aware of that, but make yourself part of that. Get to know the people around you. Get to know others so that, you know what? We have accountability, that we have that love for one another, and that we have a body of Christ here, not just a group of people who come and come together for an hour and worship and walk out those doors but it's God's family interacting. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father,